John chapter 8. Take your Bibles and turn. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Hear God speak. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let us ask God's blessing on his word. Father, we do pray for this reading and the upcoming preaching of your word. We ask that we might hear from heaven. What a bold request that is, that we unfaithful creatures would hear from our maker and our redeemer. Yet you are a God that loves to make yourself known. You have revealed yourself in creation and in the word. Might you do it yet again in the sermon. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. I went to college on top of a mountain and had all the joys and the privileges of being on top of a mountain. We had the clouds and the snow most of the time, ice, Had the caves, you've heard those stories. We had rock climbing, and I did my fair share of rock climbing. I loved rock climbing when I was in college. Well, kind of tweak that. I liked the climbing part. It was the descending part that I had trouble with. You see, I'm actually quite afraid of heights. I don't do heights very well. And I loved the climbing part because I could look up and continue to get up. Climb the the face of this steep rock and get to the top and kind of hoist yourself over and you got the harness and the rope and the whole bit and sit there and hang your feet over the edge and just admire the view. You could see multiple states from my balcony outside my room. 
the views that uh, were afforded from these cliffs were fantastic. You could see all kinds of places, absolutely gorgeous. The problem was getting down after that. You've got the harness and you have the rope and you're all clipped in, so you're really quite safe, but you have to do this thing called repelling which many of you have done or you've seen it, you know how it works. It's that thing where you kind of sit back into the harness and put your feet on the side of the rock and kind of bounce your way down as they let the rope loose. It's actually not quite that difficult. I mean, it's really actually quite easy. The problem is not actually the repelling part. It's the getting to that moment. Because what is required is for you to walk up to the edge of the cliff to turn around and sit down. Like sit down, out, over the, to sit out. And if you sit out, your feet stay on the edge of the rock and the harness catches you. And you're sitting quite, quite comfortably, feet against the rock, rear end way out into space, holding on to the rope for dear life. And it's great, it's, it's easy. The problem becomes if you are too cowardly to sit out and you try to kind of stand up as you go and what happens is you drag your face all the way along the rocks. I'm sure I have scars to prove it. You see, the thing that is required in repelling is this moment of kind of total commitment, total trust in the rope and in the person at the bottom to sit out into space. If you can sit out into space, everything's fine. The trouble comes when you have moments of half commitment. I'm going over the edge, but I'm not going to go all the way out. And that's when you hit and grind and scuff and scrape and cut. And it's very unpleasant until you get to the bottom. The Jews in which Jesus is interacting with have been confronted with the edge of the cliff through this entire conversation running in John chapter 7 and chapter 8. Over and over and over again, Jesus has been calling them to have an account for who he is. He has not hidden his character. He's not hidden his nature. He has told them in no uncertain terms, he is the living and true God. What will they do? And we've watched, they've struggled through this conversation, struggled through who this man is, struggled through his teaching because so much of it sounds good. It sounds nice, it sounds friendly, it sounds right, and then parts of it are just galling and difficult and demanding and requiring, and they don't fully know what to do. Well, that's not true. They do know what to do. They're just afraid. They're so filled with self, so filled with doubt, so filled with evil, ultimately, they cannot and have not committed to Christ. Here we come to the final kind of showdown of this interaction. Obviously, you know how it ends. It ends with him trying to kill him. And so his language here is the most pointed of all. As he demands of them, as with all people, to have this total trust, this total belief, this total acceptance of him to, in essence, sit out into space and trust that Christ will save them. In fact, the conversation here is oriented really about three criticisms from the Jews 
and three responses by Christ. And they're, they're going to show kind of three separate attributes of who this Jesus actually is. First point to see, first kind of principle is Christ Jesus is true goodness. You want to know what goodness looks like, you must look to Christ. Now, uh, it's the conversation, kind of seeing where this is in the text, verse 48, the conversation is continuing from where they left off. Jesus has just told them that they are from their father, the devil. It's not really, I would say, maybe the most polite words, but it's certainly true. You Jews that do not trust in Christ, you are of your father, the devil. He is the father of lies, the father of murder. He is evil at his very core. And you are like him. And the Jews have responded here with this question, in essence, turning it back on Jesus. He's not been nice to them. He's just hurt their feelings. And they come back with an accusation. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I love this insult. This is one of those that it kind of makes me giggle in what they're trying because they're two completely unrelated but embarrassing or evil things at the same time. Having a demon, well, we understand what that one is. This would be a person who is filled with evil because an evil spiritual being has come inside them and is helping shape or control their actions and their words. It's traditionally viewed in the scriptures, a demon-possessed person is the most miserable of humans. It is the perfect portrait of the captive, of the slave, for they are governed by the spiritual entity within them. It's a terrible, terrible situation to be in. And what comes out of them is evil upon evil upon evil upon evil. But really, that's actually not at all what the Samaritans are like, though. (laughs) In fact, actually, the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans uh, has very little to do with demons, and it has much more to do with cultural heritage. When the Jews were taken out in the exile, they were led away out into Babylon, and uh, they left the kind of leftovers. Right? It's kind of like Thanksgiving where you eat all the good stuff, and the part that you have left like six days later is all the parts of the turkey that no one wants to touch. You're like, I've already had my first, second, third, fourth, fifth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and twelfths. Whatever's left, I don't want to touch. That was what was left in Israel. The old and the ugly. And those people are stuck staying in Israel. And then as pagans come in and fill the land, they begin to interbreed. And you have Samaritans. The lineage of old and ugly mixed with pagan and unbelieving. It's the perfect concoction of non-Judaism. You want to take a Jew and see the opposite of them look to the Samaritans. And so they ask Jesus, are uh, are we right in saying at your core, you're both not Jewish, which is comical. You're dirty, you're tainted, you're corrupted, and you're demon-filled. You're evil. Though unrelated in kind of nature and essence of insult, both of them get at his goodness. One is because he's filled with a malevolent being. The other is because he's tainted and corrupted. It's like getting a blood transfusion with blood that has some sort of illness in it. It's, it's that kind of idea. You're right, but not really right. 
And Christ's response demonstrates that, no, that's entirely the wrong picture. He is true goodness. He is the true, true goodness. He is the rightness in the world. Jesus answered, and you have to think there's probably a little bit of a chuckle. I do not have a demon. No kidding. He's the Lord of life. I do not have a demon, but... I honor my father and you dishonor me. He he begins answers instead of kind of going through his lineage of birth and genealogy, he directly addresses them with his relationship with God. How do we know what this Christ Jesus is like? How do we know his character? Well, his character is defined by his relationship with his father, not Joseph, but with God himself. God the Father creator of heaven and earth and what is that relationship like it's not one of usurping power or stealing glory no instead it is a relationship of honor and truth in fact 50 he he goes further to say look i'm not even seeking my own glory the first human in history to actually have the right to seek their own glory. And he's so good and true and right that he doesn't. He's the agent of creation. He's the author of redemption. He is the Lord Christ. He could have all the glory he wants and deservedly so. But instead... He doesn't seek his own. He seeks the Father's glory, the one who does seek glory, the one who is the judge. He is true goodness because Christ Jesus is the obedient son. He is the humble son. In fact, he is so good. Verse 51, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And I just ask you a question. How good does somebody's word have to be to fix death? You think about it, that's actually, that's kind of our standard for doctors, isn't it? If we're quite ill and we go to a doctor, we want to find a doctor who will help cure our problem. And our standard of what a good doctor is, is the one who can fix it. I mean, you can go see 18 different doctors, and they may all be nice women and nice men. They may be unbelievably polite. They may hold your hand and give you tissues when you cry. But if they don't fix what's wrong with your body, that's not ultimately the end goal, is it? No, you keep going to the doctor until you find the one that's like, oh, this is your problem. This is your treatment. We're going to get it fixed. <laughs> I don't care how nice you are. You're, you're, you're my gal. You're going to be the one that's going to take care of me. We're going to get this thing fixed. Christ Jesus says he's such a good Savior. His words are indeed life-giving. Now the Jews here are going to balk at that. They're going to be upset with this fact that Christ Jesus is true goodness. And that's not surprising, really. In fact, actually, that would be something that we could look around at our world today and see that makes total sense. As we look at a culture today that's kind of moving away from its Judeo-Christian roots, moving away from its biblical moorings, and notice what happens as we move away from that biblical truth, our little ship sails away from it, what becomes good changes, doesn't it? 
mean, think about just the, the way that we parent three generations ago. How the grandparents of grandkids today, how they were raised versus the kids today. What's good and what's not. Look at how the definitions have changed. Think about, uh, actually, let's use discipline in school. I'm not really that old, but I still saw a kid get spanked in school when I was uh, a college graduate. My uh, internship in college, I was trying to run from being a pastor by being a teacher. Instead, the Lord didn't let me get very far, but I tried. Uh, And I was visiting a school in Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, working and watched a sixth grader get his tail whooped with a, uh, a paddle. You think how different it's changed. Just a handful of years ago, that discipline was good. And now is discipline is bad. I don't like discipline. It's whatever we wish. It's let me be whoever I want to be. Our whole idea, the world is topsy-turvy, where instead of two genders, we have, well, I don't even know anymore. We can't get it right. Our culture is a culture that has, in essence, given up on the idea of goodness and said goodness is whatever you want it to be. Whatever you feel like today, whatever's going to make you smile this afternoon, you know what, that's what goodness is today. If it, if it means heavily drinking yourself to feeling good, okay, that's fine. If it means pain medication, okay, that's fine. If it means a, a hookup culture on the college campus, okay, that's fine. It's whatever you want is good today. Obviously, have young kids, and I love watching how that narrative starts early in them. Even in the, the uh, entertainment programs designed for them, how many of them have an underlying message of goodness is what makes you feel good. No, it's not at all. That's a lie. That is a lie from the pit of hell. It's absolutely a lie. Goodness is Christ Jesus. He is good and his words are life. And it's interesting how we understand that in so many other areas of life, but we refuse to kind of adopt that in our Christianity. We understand that in cancer treatment, don't we? When it's time to be treated for cancer, we're we're willing to undergo chemo. Chemo doesn't make you feel good. It makes you feel much worse. And if you can survive the chemo, you've got a good chance to survive the cancer. But it doesn't make me feel good about myself, but yet I trust it to be true and right. How often do we do the same thing with the Lord and saying, look, I'm not satisfied with those things that make me uncomfortable. I'm not satisfied with those things that pull me outside of my comfort zone. I'm not satisfied with the claims for holiness that God makes on my life, on my money, on my time, on my identity. You see, we want to be our own God. We want to control the definitions. We want to rule our own lives. We want to be our own master, the master of our own fate. And the Jews show our hearts written like a gigantic billboard. Look at their response. (laughs) 52, the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. We know it. You can't be telling us that you're goodness. You can't be telling us that you have ultimate standards. You can't be telling us that you have the words of life. That's impossible. That's shenanigans. There's no way we know you're crazy. 
In fact, actually, Jesus, they go to prove to him. We know that you can't be this good. And the way we know it is by Abraham and the prophets. If your words lead to life, well, what about Abraham? Abraham's dead. What about the prophets? The prophets are dead. And we know from the Old Testament Abraham was good and the prophets were good. Obviously, you're a liar, Jesus. Obviously, you're filled with a demon. Obviously, you can't be true goodness. How is it that people, how is it that you can say people will never taste death if they believe in you? And yet Abraham's dead and the prophets have died. Verse 53, who do you make yourself out to be? He's already given them an answer explaining his goodness to them. That he is true goodness. He is faithful goodness. He is reliable goodness. Now he's going to give them an even bigger answer. Not on goodness, but on salvation. Christ Jesus is true salvation. Who do you make yourself out to be? Well, Jesus here pulls off the gloves and lets them have it. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. You're like, well, that's, a, that's an odd place to kind of start, isn't it? If I, mean, if I do it, it doesn't count for, okay, I don't understand what that means. He's, he's actually hinting at here, he's going to explain to them what his relationship with the Father looks like. How is it that he can say he can save people from death? And his answer is going to be, look at what my relationship with God the Father looks like. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Instead, it's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. So what does his relationship look like? Well, the Father is in the business of glorifying him. And that's pretty impressive because God is in the business of his own glory. What is Jesus telling them? God the Father is in the business of glorifying me because I'm God. I'm the Lord of life. I don't have to wait for your puny little approval in order for me to give salvation. And it doesn't matter if Abraham's dead. I could raise him on the spot if I wanted because I'm the Lord of life. Jesus continues. And uh, on a side note, if you were raised in a culture in which you were taught that Christianity equals nice, they lied. Because what he says next is not nice. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Again, niceness doesn't equal Christianity, nor does it equal kindness. Instead, he points into bluntly, look, if I didn't know the Lord, if I said I didn't know the Lord, I'd be lying the same way that you're lying right now. Why? Because I am true. And not only am I true, but I am true salvation. I am true life. Because your father Abraham even rejoiced, 56, at my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, honestly, we're not Jews, and so we don't kind of, that's not something that, at least most of us aren't Jews, that doesn't prompt our kind of thinking right away. Like, why would that make them angry? I mean, they go, you know, crazy after that. Why does it make them so angry that he says, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day? He saw it, past tense, and was glad, past tense. Well, I don't, that doesn't make any sense. And you have to go back and kind of look at the life of Abraham to see this, to make, kind of understand what it is. 
Abraham is kind of the, I'm comfortable saying, central figure of the Old Testament. In that, he is a total pagan. That in the midst of his complete pagan life, the Lord kind of grabs him in the midst of his pagan living and says, Oh, you pagan guy, go over there. Do what I tell you. And he goes, okay. And picks up and he goes. And as this pagan guy is in the process of going because this God that he doesn't know told him to, eventually he gets there and this God that he does not know who has chosen him out of all of the thousands and millions of people on the planet, that chosen God reveals himself to him and forms a covenant with him to say, look, you Abraham will be mine. And because you are mine, I will bless you to the ends of the earth. I will bless you with so many blessings. The only way I can describe it is in language that's too big for you to understand. My blessings will be the same as the number of stars that you can see. Which, you know, Fort Mill these days, light pollution, that's about like seven. But for Abraham with no lights, that's, you know, millions and millions. You see everything. Oh, it'll be like sand on the seashore. Oh, well, I mean, I can't count those. They're too big of numbers. There'll be unnumbered multitudes. And all of those promises are going to be passed down through his family, through his lineage, through his children. But that's the problem. He doesn't have any children. In fact, actually, he's not going to have any children for decades after that promise. He's going to kind of fake it once with a concubine. But God does not provide the child of promise for many, many, many years. And so Abraham lives so much of his life looking forward to the arrival of God's promise. Until one day, can you imagine how that conversation went? His wife walks up like, I know you're not going to believe this. I mean, I really, I know you're not going to believe this, but I'm pregnant. And the joy that would have followed. And to think for decades, he's been waiting for that conversation to happen. He's been waiting for her to say that. He's been waiting for God to keep his promise. And then think about the joy when he held his son for the first time. I mean, parents, you know that feeling anyways. It's it's unlike any other feeling in the world. When you hold this little creature that's made from you and your spouse. And you're like, this is amazing. And then to think that for him, not only was it all of the joys of parenting, all of the joys of childbirth, but this was the physical representation of God's promises. I mean, you have to think, for all of Abraham's life, he had been, in essence, told, or since the Lord had sent him away, he had said, look, I'm going to bless you this way, this way, this way, this way, this way, this way, this way. And the way you're going to know it's true is I will give you a son. And when you hold that son, you will feel all of my promises. Jesus actually calls them to the day of that birth. And he says, you think Abraham rejoiced when he held his son in his hands? He was rejoicing for me. Because that son is just a son. I'm the savior he was waiting for. Yeah, that actually, that'll make him mad. (laughs) That, That right there, that will make an unbeliever angry. 
That right there will be the thing that sets the Jews or any non-Christian on end to say, the very thing that you are longing for at your core can only be satisfied in Christ. All of the blessings of life, all of the joys of life ultimately point to Christ. All of the hopes and the longings, all of the desires, all of the promises of the scriptures all come to a head in King Jesus and Jesus alone. This morning in Sunday school, we started our new Sunday school series for the adults on church history. We're going to look at kind of prep ourselves for the Reformation. And we're going to look at kind of big picture themes and dangers throughout church history. And it's interesting how the vast majority of the dangers in church history, the vast majority of the problems in church history, the vast majority of the evil ones, Jude talks about the creepers, the ones who've crept into the church with perverse theology, all center on taking Jesus out of the center point of the story. They all take Jesus and trying to kind of make him a side character, to make him marginal, to make him less than the focus of all of human existence. They try to make him only a man and not God. They try to make him God and not man. They try to make him all these things that he's not because he knows and we know he is the center of the story. The Jews continue in their debate. In their last objection is, in, I guess in essence, it's really ridiculous. In verse 57, they know that he's not speaking literally, and yet they do the thing that like, you know, five-year-olds love to do, to take whatever kind of threat you're making literally just to be obnoxious. That's in essence what they do right here. How is it, Abraham, you're not 50 years old yet? They're, they're being obtuse on purpose. You're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Come on, man. How can you be talking about Abraham? We know he died a long time ago. Come on, man. And Jesus' response is, uh, has to be one of the most powerful sentences in the entirety of the scriptures. Truly, truly. That gives you the stage being set. Whatever follows next is both true and terribly important. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, in English, that's like really just a weird sentence. Where's the predicate nominative? I am what? I'm happy? I am Jesus. That's correct. You are. I, I, what follows the I am? In the Greek, this is a little different, though. Because you remember, actually, early on in church history, you go up on the burning bush, up on Mount Sinai, you have all of the interactions. And what is the name that they find out for God? They don't know his name throughout the earliest parts of the scriptures until really it's time for God's people to be gathered together. And Moses is interacting. And what's the name? They, they, Yahweh. Or Jehovah, which Hebrew is kind of in essence, it's the to be verb. We don't really know what tense and how it works, but it's I am that I am is one of the ways it's been translated. It's, it's to be. I, I, I am being 
I am reality. I am God. And then when that comes over into the Greek, it's translated I, I am, which is what Jesus says here. You see, what he says to them is not simply, oh, before Abraham was, I happened to be around. Oh, I happen to live. I'm a really old guy. I have the most unbelievable skincare system. You would not know. He's not what he's saying. Before Abraham founded Judaism, I was God. He is the true God. The living God, the real God, the only God. And what do they do? They pick up stones to throw at him because they know they can't deal with that truth. That the living God would be in front of them, talking to them, making claims upon their lives, demanding things from them, telling them to obey him, telling them that he has the way to life. And I find it to be really interesting. Part of the joy of having four Gospels is they all tell this transition kind of in a different way. John is the one who tells it happening the earliest. And that's because the large part of this, the rest of this book takes place on the last week that Jesus, uh, prior to his crucifixion and what follows. But, but they all kind of mark this serious transition where as Jesus gets clearer in explaining his divinity, the crowds get angrier. Now, I mean, he, he does all kinds of teaching. He explains truth. He, you know, he does miracles. He casts out demons. He heals the sick. He does all kinds of things that would show him to be God. But when he starts claiming it, that's when they start trying to kill him. I mean, here he, he actually hides himself and sneaks out of the temple. It's kind of one of those, you know, the crowd starts tearing up stones out of the floor around them, getting ready to kill him. And he kind of ducks behind a column and then just kind of vanishes in the crowd and he's gone. And part of that is because all four Gospels, and John's particularly, are designed to call us to the same response, the same kind of question that is being pushed upon the Jews here. What are you going to do with Jesus? Here you have a man before you, his true goodness, who is true salvation, who is the true God. What are you going to do with him? And the unbelieving response the Jews show is to exterminate him, to try to get rid of him, to try to do anything to restore me to be the Lord of my own life. Because realistically, we don't like anyone else to be in charge. We like to be in the driver's seat of our soul. And if Jesus is who he says he is, I never had that right in the first place. Instead, here he calls us to contemplate, what will we do with the living and true God? What will we do with Christ who stands before us even now, the real king of salvation? And the reality of the matter is, that's the question. I mean, it's it's the question. 
Douglas Adams kind of captured that so well in his Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with his absurdist take on life to say, well, the answer is 42. We just never figured out what the question is. No, we do know the question. We've known it all along. What are you going to do with Jesus? That's the, that is the question. The answer is not 42. What are you going to do with Jesus? Will you believe him? Will you trust him? Will you, as in the repelling illustration, just kind of throw yourself back? Rest in him. You see, that's the, that's the model for the saints. That's what we're called to do, is to throw ourselves into the arms of Christ and to say, look, you handle problems way better than I do. I just need you to handle me the problem. I, I am the problem. You handle me, please. Some of us just outright reject him. And honestly, most of it, I, that's probably not many of us in here. I mean, I'm in a church, you're in a church, I'm preaching, you're listening. Odds are not high, that's probably most of us, but you still got to talk about it. Following the line of the Jews to say, I will do anything to get the idea of Christ out of my life. And those are the people you got to worry about. We talked about what happens to them already in the section here in Jude. It's eternal destruction. And as uncomfortable and inconvenient as that is, it is a real truth. Eternal destruction. No, the bigger category I worry about for rooms like this are the people who trust Jesus the way that I repel. And that is badly. That rather than trusting in him and and leaning in him and resting in him, instead we try to kind of manage it with both him and us at the same time, and we end up just skidding our faces down the rocks of life. And for many of us, we know that feeling now as we feel the cuts and bruises on the face and the hands and the knees of our soul right now. I would ask you, if you're sitting here, don't, I mean, rhetorical, don't answer. I mean, do you feel those? Do you feel those wounds in your soul now from where you recognize I'm wrestling with my Savior and not the right way? I'm not content with him. I don't really ultimately trust him. And I need to. And my challenge for you today would be simple. Repent. What you're doing, fighting against him, wrestling against him, skidding down the face of the rock of your life, that's sin and it's wrong and it's not healthy and it's no fun. This week as you go about your week, repent and ask for help. You see, this is the beautiful thing about the Lord Jesus. Is it's not just that he's telling them that he is their God and then saying, oh, by the way, you're off now. Go figure it out on your own. The rest of the book is going to tell, him, tell us how tender he is and how kind and how he's going to heal a man born blind out of mercy and love and how he's going to set up a supper where he eats with them regularly even after he's in glory. How he is tender and merciful. Should you find yourself in those circumstances... It's time to go back to your Savior, to confess your sin, to trust Him, and to let Him work in your life. Stop fighting Him and work with Him. Because the reality of the matter is Christian life is certainly not always fun, and it's filled with persecutions. It's filled with trials and difficulties. That's what He uses to get us motivated enough to change. But it's always designed to be filled with joy. And if we're lacking that joy, a lot of times it's because we're banging our heads on the wrong rock. Let me close in prayer. Father in heaven, 
We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for Christ Jesus. And true goodness, true salvation, and the true God. Lord, we ask that you would even teach us what it's like to repent. That you would teach us what it's like to trust in you. That you would teach us what it's like to submit ourselves to your plan, to your will, and to your word. That we might work with you instead of fighting you. Forgive us for all the times we have fought against you in the past and the times we will in the future until either King Jesus comes back or we die and you take us home. Help us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.